0: Thank you. Service in any of our military branches involves sacrifice. But there are different roles and different groups. In in most of the military branches, there's a unique group uh, that may be called special forces, special operations, think Navy SEALs or Army Rangers, Green Berets, Air Force special tactics, and several kinds of Marines. These are dedicated special forces and units that use unconventional methods and resources. They're often the first group into hostile territory, the first group to attack the enemy or to possess territory or to conduct some kind of espionage. Special forces, as military people know, are extremely important because they typically deploy in advance and they're the ones that embrace the highest risks. They pave the way for the forces that come after them. And without them, the whole task would be extremely difficult, if not impossible. There's also kind of special forces as we engage the enemy and declare freedom to the captives in this spiritual realm. But instead of being a group or a force of people, it's one person. Instead of doing just advance work, that person does advance work, and simultaneous work, and follow-up work. And instead of being special forces, that person is a supernatural force. In fact, he's divine. I speak, of course, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who is sent to be with us and, and behind us and beside us. And he's not just special ops. I want to call him supernatural ops in all of life and in all of witness. You see, without the Holy Spirit, our vulnerability, our task would be daunting. But with him, we're victorious as we represent Jesus in a skeptical world and sometimes even a hostile world. Today, we're going to examine the work of the Holy Spirit from the first part of John chapter 16. If you've been with us, you know in the last two weeks we've been in John 15, we've seen how important it is to abide in Christ, like like branches that remain attached to the vine in order to bear spiritual fruit. This is the fruit of righteousness in our character and the fruit of uh, conversions to faith in Jesus Christ on account of our witness. Last week we examined the sober reality that the world, as John's gospel describes it, hates Jesus who he is, what he's done, and that the world will hate those who follow him as well, that that this is par for the course for Christians, that we should expect to be marginalized and sidelined and scorned, even persecuted, sometimes martyred on account of our allegiance to him. Today we're going to look at the presence of the Holy Spirit, his purpose and his plan in representing Jesus to the world. John chapter 16, I hope you have your Bibles, turn there if you would, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 5, where we left off last week, up through verse 15. Read with me, if you would, John 16, verse 5 and following. But now, Jesus says, I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. Now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify Me, because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit. Will receive from me what he will make known to you. In all of John chapter 15, including the first couple of verses of chapter 16, it's fascinating that the Holy Spirit is not even mentioned, except two verses at the end of chapter 15. It's not that Jesus is omitting the Holy Spirit. that The Spirit is, we might say, lurking in the background of all that Jesus says. But he comes out explicitly at the end of chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, and then in a major way in our entire passage today. Here's what it says at the end of John 15, verse 26. Jesus says, when the advocate comes, the helper, the comforter in your Bibles perhaps, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you, disciples, Jesus says, also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus said that the Spirit is coming, that the Spirit is coming from the Father, and that the Spirit will testify about Jesus and that followers of Jesus will do the same. Jesus forecasts all of this. He he teases it out for his disciples to hear before he begins to lay it out in detail in the coming chapters. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is indispensable and highly desirable for the disciples' future. And he turns to that in John 16:5 and following. First point in your outline, the presence, the Holy Spirit will be the new presence you need, Jesus says to his disciples in verses 5 to 7. This is the upper room discourse, and Jesus continues to speak to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he slowly adds additional topics to that which he's already reminded them of. And in verse 5, he, he actually calls them out for not inquiring about his impending departure, about his destination, If you look closely, Peter actually asked him this question back in chapter 13, verse 36. So it's possible that Jesus is not rebuking them for that, but for in the moment having forgotten that. Remember, it's likely a couple hours later in the evening as Jesus is talking to them. They're likely to have moved to a different place, we see in the narrative. And Peter's question several hours ago may have been a little bit like the little boy one writer says, who's disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting. And both the boy and his dad expected instead to go fishing together. And the boy says, oh, dad, where are you going? Not wanting to know at all what the destination was, but rather to protest. The, The unspoken question is, why are you leaving me now? The disciples haven't really asked thoughtful questions of Jesus and and what that means for them. Jesus has to tell them. Jesus wants them to focus on the here and now, what he's saying to them, so that they can be prepared in the future for what's going to happen to them. Things are changing, Jesus says, and you need to be ready, friends. But the disciples remain preoccupied with themselves. They're doing the typical human thing, which is to think about me, myself, and I. They're still in a fog here. They're still kind of traumatized about this impending transition and unnerved that Jesus might be leaving them. So Jesus gives them news that he himself surely knew that they couldn't bear or completely understand, but he wanted them to take notice so that they might remember this in the future. His main point is clear. It's for your good that I'm leaving so that the Holy Spirit will come. He knows that they won't see his departure as good, but they should. Remember, as we said several weeks ago, it's like leaving your child at college. It's hard, but it's the best thing for them. It's like leaving your children with the best aunt and uncle. They might not want to stay as you depart for your anniversary trip, but it's for their good. Actually, This analogy is far better than those flawed analogies because the truth in this situation is that they're getting someone even better than Jesus in the flesh in the sense of what he can do and where he lives and where he goes. Many have noted that the spirit inside you is even better than Jesus beside you. To the disciples, this departure of Jesus seems disastrous but actually it was to their prophet. And that remains true today. Current followers of Jesus, get this, are in a better position with better presence and more power than the disciples during that last evening supper. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would soon come upon them at Pentecost permanently to live in them, to guide them. And the spirit of Jesus continues in that role in Jesus' followers today. In many ways, it's better to live after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, than it was to live during his earthly ministry. That means, believer, if you know Jesus, then you, y'all, have the power of God in you. He is the perfect, divine, animating presence of our lives. Jesus explains his overriding purpose in this same passage. Skip down to verse 12 of John 16 to see that. The purpose is that the Holy Spirit will highlight the truth of Jesus. Jesus continues with his instructions here. But he knows, again, that the disciples won't be able to make sense of all this in the moment, to understand its significance. We parents understand this. We do this all the time with our own children. We give them input, we give them instruction, we give them correction and exhortation, much of which they don't understand now, but it will be useful at a future time, at a future stage of life. And we want them to be ready now for what's going to happen then so that they can make good choices about relationships and finances and habits and priorities and values. These are all going to be important at a future time, and the time for them to begin considering what they will do is now. Last week, for instance, our family took opportunity to look back at the message, the sermon of, from John 15. And we noted that it's easy to think that because we're not facing overt or physical persecution in the present, that that passage is completely irrelevant to us. But someday it might be, likely will be. History is full of warnings that pressure and opposition are reality normal for believers. Jesus then, in this passage, makes a declarative statement. The coming Spirit will guide you into all truth, he tells his disciples. The Spirit will, will operate as a kind of internal control if you let him. It's not that he's going to do all the work for us. Instead, he will enable us to do What he asks of us. One of our pastors this week remembered an illustration that our own pastor Jim Custer gave years ago about the role of the Holy Spirit. Think of weightlifting and someone wanting to push weights up off of themselves. The Holy Spirit doesn't take the weights away from us and do our work for us, but the Spirit is underneath us as if he's pushing our elbows against gravity so that we can lift that in his power. Exactly. Jesus highlights several essentials here about the role of the Holy Spirit. First, the Spirit doesn't act on his own. The Spirit is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, after all. And contrary to some of the popular misconceptions, even among believers, the Holy Spirit is not some kind of maverick within the Trinity in our world. The Spirit is always at work highlighting Jesus. He's not a renegade actor In the Trinity. The role of the Spirit, as Tim Keller says, is to be self effacing, pointing away from Himself to the beauty of Christ, lifting up Christ, showing people the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the climax of God's revelation, He's the climax of God's self disclosure, of His self expression. Everything that has gone on before has pointed to Jesus Christ. Whatever Christ has done, Is doing, will do. That's what the Holy Spirit points to. Remember the playground game when you were a kid? Simon says, everybody wants to be Simon. Everybody wants to have the say. Everybody wants to be able to boss others around, to tell them what to do, as the Germans would say, to be the bestimma, to determine how others respond. Jesus is telling his disciples here that the Holy Spirit is the spiritual Simon. What he says, do. He speaks for me. Because he's God. Second thing Jesus says in these verses, the Spirit points to the revealed truth of God. It's not so much that the Holy Spirit specializes in revealing new truth, but rather reminding us of old truth. You know, in our day, we want to make the Holy Spirit make all the decisions for us. Foolproof decisions where we can't go wrong. You know, which young lady out of the million should I marry? How many children should we have? Should I take this job? Should I pursue that career? Which financial investments should I make? Should I take a loan that will become like a noose around my neck? No. No, but that's not the role of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit speaks for Jesus, and Jesus speaks the words Of God. Jesus highlights the Word of God. And so the Spirit and the Savior and the Scriptures, three voices, speak with one voice. Well, you might ask, does God still speak today, or or has He gone mute? Kevin DeYoung expresses it well. He says, This, yes, God still speaks. God is not silent. He communicates with us personally and directly, but this ongoing speech is not ongoing revelation. The Holy Spirit no longer reveals new doctrines, but takes everything from Christ. God keeps speaking through what he has already said. When the scriptures are read, the Holy Spirit still speaks. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything, but it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. Exactly. In other words, the Bible is sufficient, though not exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything about everything. And God never intended that. The Bible tells us what matters most. The question is whether we'll open our Bibles and listen. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Third, the Holy Spirit will tell you what is to come, Jesus says. And we hear that in 2020, and we think you means Us. Well, not exactly. True, this promise of Jesus is for all who will follow him, but it's primarily for the time and the place of the first recipients here. The disciples remember sitting in that room with Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a set of podcasts from Jesus. They didn't have a DVD series. They couldn't download the best of Jesus All they had with them were the remnants in their own minds of what he had said to them over the course of many places and several years. And they were probably worried that evening about the possibility of forgetting much of what Jesus said. So Jesus reassured them that the Spirit would bring to remembrance what he, Jesus, had taught them in their future experience without him. We tend to think, What is to come in this passage is all about end times material, what we will face in the future. You know, 2020 and beyond, the appearance of the kingdom, the events of the apocalypse. But remember, Jesus is speaking here to his first disciples. What is yet to come refers to the the consequence of who Jesus is. His person, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And what's going to present that? What's going to preserve that? Well, primarily the yet-to-be-written-at-that-time New Testament. And some of these very disciples would end up being writers of that divine material. Those writings would summarize the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the, the teachings of Jesus that he desires all of his followers to embrace. The Holy Spirit would make all that possible for them, and now for us. Finally, stuck in the middle of this passage, is perhaps the culmination of it all, the plan of the Holy Spirit to expose the pretensions or the distortions of the world. Verse 8 and following. This is the centerpiece of the passage and it's an English teacher's dream because the the outline of it is as obvious as the noonday sun. Verse 8 is the main idea and the next three verses are commentary on that. Now if you look closely at verse 8, the most obvious issue to to understand here is the meaning of the word convict. It's the word elenko in Greek, and not a particularly common word in the New Testament. And almost all of our Bibles translate it convict, a decent translation. The New Testament, or excuse me, the New International Version uses the phrase, prove the world to be in the wrong, a rather clunky phrase, though the attempt is well-motivated. Convict may be the best English word, but it doesn't quite hit the bullseye here. The idea that Jesus is expressing is that the Holy Spirit shows people to be in the wrong by exposing their guilt and shaming them for it. It's not just a mistake or an error. It's a willful distortion of the truth. It's not just a legal verdict, but it's a moral verdict against the world. The world has been found out, Jesus says, and the Holy Spirit will highlight it. Convict means to expose and convict of personal guilt in a way that results in shame and calls for repentance. It's as if the Holy Spirit is the prosecutor in the court of heaven against the distortions and pretensions of the world. You might remember that world in John's gospel refers not so much to the entire globe as it refers to the moral badness of humanity. We're speaking of people here. And we're speaking of the anti-God system that permeates our planet, that causes millions to shake their fist at God every chance they get. The world is a sinful humanity in moral darkness and rebellion. Three things that the Holy Spirit does here in John 16:8 and following. First, He exposes or convicts the world of sin. What is sin? The Holy Spirit comes and and convicts unbelievers of the complicity of the sin. that, That they're responsible for it. Sin, for many people in our modern times, is an antiquated word. Many people think that we're enlightened now, and we don't really believe in sin anymore. But the Spirit will come, Jesus says, and he will pierce the pretensions of our world about sin. That we are no longer sinners, that sin doesn't exist. False. In fact, the Holy Spirit will show us that our sin exists in the very deeds of our lives, that we chase after idols, that we numb our pain with distractions, that we blame everyone else, even the system for what's wrong in life. But me, sinner? No way. We all do this, or one day did. Tony Evans, in his excellent book, on the Holy Spirit called the promise describes the analogy of the world's pattern to that of a contemporary amusement park. Evans, a noted pastor in Dallas, says, think of a young boy who's enthralled with Disneyland only to later discover that he has lost his parents in the amusement park and and the eventual result for him is disaster. Evans writes, the great tragedy of our world is that people are so busy enjoying the rides and the thrills and the bright lights that they haven't even noticed that they're not in fellowship with God. They're so busy sucking on the cotton candy of life, riding the Ferris wheel of entertainment, going up and down the roller coaster of pleasure that they haven't even noticed God is not in the vicinity anymore. Unsaved people walk around in a spiritual fog or daze not really understanding what God expects from them. The Bible affirms this tragic state, that those who are lost are, are not just lost, but they're blind. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, people don't realize how exceedingly sinful sin is. They they call it a mistake, a bad habit, a weakness, anything to soften the blow, but God calls it sin. An affront to a holy God. Romans 3.23, that same Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict and expose the pretensions of people regarding sin in general. More specifically, he convicts them of the sin of rejecting the Savior. And of showing them that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. Verse 10, the question, who is righteous? The convicting work of the Spirit in the hearts of the world of unbelievers to which we all belonged at one time and if we don't know Jesus we still do is centered on the person of Jesus. You see the Holy Spirit simultaneously convicts people of the rags of their own righteousness namely that they have none and the riches of Christ's righteousness that he is the perfect one. First the world is convicted of its righteousness which is empty And we need to know that. Our nature as sinful human beings is a lot like the the wicked queen in Snow White. Perhaps you remember. It's as if we stand in front of the mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest, the most righteous of them all? And we seek all kinds of answers that we want to hear for people to say to us that we're just fine. And if we can get enough things, enough people to lie to us, then we'll think that we're really all right and never come to realize that Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy the demands of a holy God. So it's the job of the Holy Spirit to convince people that Jesus is the only righteous one, the only one to measure up to God's standard. And typically, the Spirit of God uses the people of God and the Word of God in order to expose those pretensions. He holds up Jesus as the standard. And that creates a dilemma for people. Maybe you remember that brilliant kid in your classroom as a school child. The dilemma of that brilliant kid was was shown for everyone else on test after test. Similar with Jesus. The problem with Jesus is that he ruins the curve. You think you're okay spiritually until you run into Jesus. And then you find out that you and everyone else has failed the test of meeting God's standard. But this perfection of Jesus is not just the condemnation of our righteousness. It's also the invitation of his righteousness. Evans goes on to write the death of Jesus Christ removed the barrier that kept sinners from being reconciled to a holy God, thus freeing God to save anyone and everyone who believes. Every person is still responsible to come to Christ in repentance and faith to be saved, but Christ's death makes that transaction available to all. The issue on the table is what a person does with Christ. Evangelism isn't just throwing general moral truths at people or even trying to show the existence of God. Evangelism means presenting the person of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit typically does this through the people of God, through Jesus' followers, who are empowered by him to represent Jesus. Third question, when comes judgment? Verse 11. Finally, here the Spirit highlights to the world that, that it's evil deeds, that it's Evil leader are condemned. The disciples probably had little category for this because in just a few hours their own leader, who they thought was righteous, would be hanging on a cross. He would be condemned. It would look like the world is, is winning. But just days later, all of that would be turned on its head. For the Bible tells us that on the cross, it was Jesus who disarmed the powers and authorities. Making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then Jesus would be raised from the dead, and Satan himself would be unmasked as the ultimate pretender, as the ultimate distorter and rebel. And, and, and people would highlight their own condemnation in the way they treated Jesus in their conclusions about him. And yet God is patient with those rebels to which all of us belonged at one time. Not wanting anyone to perish, but, but all to come to repentance. As Tony Evans says, the Holy Spirit is the champion of heavens lost and found. And his work is to convict people of this world, people separated from God, to be reconciled to him. That they would come to repentance. That they would understand that apart from God's work in their life that they really don't know the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. And that in the mercy of God, he would show them what they don't have so that they understand what they need in a Savior. The wonderful news in these verses, friends, is that our demonstration, our declaration of the gospel is not alone. It's not isolated. It's not all in our own strength. But rather, the Holy Spirit of God goes before us, often in ways we don't even see, to expose the reality in people before their very eyes, to convict them of their need for a Savior, to show them that their life really isn't life. And in all of the process, in drawing a person to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is involved, convicting And making Jesus attractive. That should give those of us who know Jesus and represent him immense comfort. uh, Immense courage and boldness. That should take a giant weight off of our shoulders. Realizing that our eloquence, our intellect, our, our powers are not the make or break issues. Only a supernatural power can do supernatural work. And it's the spirit of God who's the person to do that and we have to trust him. So what does that mean for us? What's our role? Well, as Paul would say in the Bible, much in every way. The Spirit of God doesn't pull us off the evangelistic field and say, let me have it. Rather, he leaves us on the field to say, now follow my playbook. Participate. Be involved. But realize it's my power and your participation. Don't get them confused. J.I. Packer in his fabulous classic Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God says our evangelistic work is the instrument that God uses for this purpose. But the power that's saved is, is not the instrument. It is the hand of the one who uses the instrument. And that is the Holy Spirit. But we're involved. That same Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Paul wasn't indifferent, but Paul sought to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't just throw truth at them. He got alongside them. He tried to understand them and he showed them what Jesus means. Packer again says, evangelism includes the endeavor to elicit a response to the truth taught. It's communication with a view to conversion. We're not simply trying to inform people, but we're inviting them to faith in Jesus Christ. And the same's true today. We're called to bear good news of Jesus. The Holy Spirit goes before us, he does the heavy lifting, and we bear witness. Will our witness save anyone? No but all throughout history, the history of the Holy Spirit's work. He uses those who are no longer of the world to speak to the world so that they would be called out of the world to know Jesus. To see that the hollow, bitter nature of this life doesn't fulfill, doesn't save, and that they should take seriously the person of Jesus Christ. This past week was a bittersweet one for me. One of my mentors from afar passed away. His name is Ravi Zacharias. He was born and raised in India, educated in North America, and became a worldwide proclaimer of the gospel. In the 1990s, as a young man, he had a formative influence on my life. I looked in my library this week to see the books that I had, that I've read from Ravi Zacharias, helped prepare me for our time in Europe and now in the United States. And Ravi had this unbelievable way of treating people with dignity and respect while undermining all of their claims against Christian faith. Because of the power of Ravi Zacharias? No. But because Ravi knew that our job is, to, is not to make the message of the gospel palatable, but to make it understandable. And everything that he was, was now given over to Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit to let the world know who God was and how they could know him too. The question for us isn't, can we muster the power? The power is in the Holy Spirit. It's will we open our mouths and live our lives in a way that causes people to see that they're not righteous, that judgment is coming, and that they are sinners and need God. You see, it's in our lives and witness that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting and the special supernatural operation in the lives of others. And he calls us to join him in that endeavor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who comes to live within us, to direct our lives, and to give us courage to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Help us in this season of life and this time in our lives, if we know you, to give you something to work with as we live and speak the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use it to great abundance that people might come to know the living God and Jesus Christ, the one he has sent. Thank you, Spirit, for what you offer us.